This morning we'll read from the first chapter of John. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there and meet me. Uh, Specifically in verses 14 through 18 is where we will read. That's John 1, verses 14 to 18. Uh, Before we uh, get there, though, and begin, I did want to touch base with you about a couple of different things. Um, First, many of you have already heard this as we've actually already communicated. uh, But if you haven't yet, uh, this past week, FAC's leadership has determined um, that it would be prudent for us to cancel our in-person services for Christmas Eve. Uh, specifically, this we are, we are still planning on having in-person services on Sunday mornings uh, for now, and so I'm pleased to see you all here. Uh, and we do plan on having an online option for Christmas Eve uh, this week. Um, the plan right now is to air, if you will, we will um, actually record ahead of time and then air a service, if you will, um, at uh, three o'clock on YouTube and then five o'clock on Facebook. And so we're trying to hit as many people in different avenues as we can. Uh, the video will also be posted on both of those pages for you to watch at your own leisure as well, should you not be able to make those uh, times online. Um, but we do hope you'll join us. Uh, there were a lot of things that went into that decision and that we needed to consider in this regard. And that's where our leadership has ultimately landed. And uh, you, you guys should be really proud of your elders and your FAC staff uh, because they have the courage, first of all, to make these tough decisions. What God has entrusted them this season is uh, is quite the burden, uh, but they have the courage to make the decisions while remaining dignified. Uh, you, you would be amazed, obviously, uh, the, the issues that we have had to deal with this past year are very divisive in nature. Um, but our staff and our leaders, our elders, remain in unity. Uh, and it's nothing short of a miracle uh, by God's Spirit that we've been able to do so. And so you should be proud of them. Um, I understand that that decision not to have Christmas Eve services in person may be sad for you. Uh, in all reality, I'm sad, and I'm one of the ones that helped make that decision. Uh, it's a sad thing, and it's okay to be sad about it, but regardless, we entrust that decision to God's care. Uh, and we move forward, and I do appreciate your graciousness and your understanding in that regard. Uh, and I am thankful that we'll be able to at least continue uh, in person on Sundays for the time being. Um, so there's that. Uh, item number two, there's another thing that bears mentioning this morning. Uh, this is just by way of really celebration and recognition. Uh, you may not have known him, but uh, back on December 9th, Uh, Jim McDonald passed away, and he is now enjoying the full presence of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jim was a member here for at least 30 years, to my knowledge. Uh, He has served on staff in the past. He has served uh, as an elder on several occasions in the past. Uh, Many of you probably knew Jim and knew even of his work in the uh, school system and in athletics. He had many, many human achievements and athletics is my understanding that he was an athletic director at Edinburgh. He is actually in the Athletics Hall of Fame in, um, in certain schools. Uh, but if you were to ask him what his proudest accomplishment here on earth was, uh, it would have been his missions work to the Dominican Republic, uh, to, to the DR. He was a founder of an organization 25 years ago um, called Meeting God in Missions, And it's an organization that provided and still provides opportunity for short-term missions trips to the DR, uh, many trips which you yourself may have been a part of or influenced by. 
Um, over the last 25 years, over 10,000 people have participated in missions through that particular ministry. The Apostle Paul at one point wrote that we should run the spiritual race in a way, such a way that we may win. Uh, and Jim did just that. And now he is finished with the race. And he has won the prize through Jesus Christ. And there is no doubt in my mind that God looked at Jim upon his arrival and said, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we were blessed and privileged to have uh, here at FAC Jim as one of our own. And so during this difficult time uh, for Mary Lou, we do rejoice uh, with her, but we also mourn with her as well. That was his wife. And so keep her in prayer um, during this difficult time. So let's go ahead and spend now the rest of our time in God's word. Let's turn to God's word together. Uh, Once again, I'll be reading John chapter one, and we'll start in verse 14. We will read through verse 18. John writes this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Father, because of our sinfulness, uh, it is difficult for us to understand your ways and your words. Our minds are clouded, which makes it impossible to understand you. But you have promised uh, that your spirit can give clarity. So as we come to your word today, Lord, would you move in our midst? Would you display your glory, or would you give us clarity by the power of your Spirit? Let us see the face and the glory of Jesus this morning. And in your Son's name we pray all of this. Amen. I have been a huge baseball fan for as long as I can remember. And um, growing up in the Cleveland area, area during the 90s, of course, my favorite player was Hall of Famer Jim Tomey. He was Cleveland's first baseman. And the reason that he was my favorite player is because he was the slugger in the lineup. That guy just hit home runs. It's what we paid him for, right? He's only one of nine baseball players in all of history to hit more than 600 home runs. And as a child, I had the privilege of witnessing many of those. Uh, He actually still holds the record for the longest home run ever hit in Progressive Field, which is uh, Cleveland Stadium. Uh, Very special moments for me, watching those games with my father and watching Jim Tomey just clock baseballs out of the park over and over again. Uh, But despite all of those special moments and those home runs and the walk-offs that I witnessed as a child, uh, my favorite Jim Tomey moment actually came in the off-season, nowhere near a baseball field. I was probably about nine or ten years old at the time, and uh, my dad and I were in a video rental store uh, on, on the weekend. It was called Blockbuster, if you remember those. 
Um, and I'm, I'm actually standing near the cash register waiting for my dad to uh, come and, and pay for the game that I wanted to rent. And he comes up to me and he says, Michael, Jim Tomey is in the store right now. And I didn't believe him. And I said, really? He said, yeah, just walk around that corner of that aisle and you'll see him. And so almost like in disbelief, I started making my way to that corner in the direction that he pointed. And then all of a sudden around the corner came this towering monster of a man walking in my direction. And I stopped dead in my tracks and my eyes got huge. And I turned around to my dad and, and I shouted out in excitement, probably loud enough for everybody in the whole store to hear, is that him? Is that Jim Tomey? And so uh, we checked out and we left the store uh, and we waited out right outside the door uh, to, to the store. My dad wanted uh, to give me the opportunity to meet him. And, and, and once he came out, my dad stopped him so I could meet him. And he was such a kind and gentle man. Uh, very, very gentle, this sort of gentle giant. When he shook my hand, though, his bare paw of a hand like reached all the way up to my elbow. I'm pretty sure he covered my entire forearm. Um, he was just this massive guy. Uh, and this was such a cool moment for me because it's one thing to watch a hero of mine on TV. Uh, you can watch him and you can hear him talk in post-game interviews, and you can study and memorize all the stats about him. I, I had knowledge, all this knowledge about him, but, but it's entirely different to meet him in the flesh. And not just to meet him, but be able to have contact with him, to shake his hand. Jim Tomey was more real to me in that moment than ever before. To know someone, and not just to know someone, but to experience, to feel, to touch, to, to see someone or something in the flesh, is to experience the fullness of that person's existence. Perhaps you've had a similar thing happen. It may not be a ball player, but perhaps it's a musician that you've seen play in the flesh in concert or some sort of celebrity, a famous actor or an actress that you've met. And when you, when you meet them in the flesh, it's just different. It's just different. And so when we come to the opening verse in our passage, which says that the word became flesh, its profoundness should not be lost on us. Now, I was even hesitant, if I could be truthful, I was hesitant today to even open up our time together with that story because I want to make it very perfectly clear that Jim Tomey in the flesh and the word in the flesh that John writes about aren't even in the same league. In fact, the word is infinitely superior to anybody because of who the Word is, because of His nature. Once again, the Word here in verse 14 is a reference to Jesus. We looked at that several weeks ago, uh, and we were reminded when we looked at the first five verses who the Word is. Or in other words, we were reminded of the nature of the Word. 
the nature of Jesus, who he is. Um, we, we know that Jesus was with God, and we know that he was God, and we know that Jesus was there in the beginning and that he was present before the beginning. We know that all things were created through Jesus and that not a single thing in existence was created apart from him. This is why Jesus is infinitely superior because anybody who walks the earth was created by Jesus. If you sit here today, whether you believe in Jesus or not, or, or believe that or not, you're, you owe your very existence to him. And because of that, he ranks before you. He's superior to you. John the Baptist is quoted once more, and he hits the nail on the, right on the head in verse 15, where he says, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now you read that and you kind of scratch your head a little bit and say, now hold up, that doesn't make any sense. What do you mean, John? What do you, what do you mean that he came after you, uh, but, he, but he was before you and so he ranks uh, before you? That, that sounds like an oxymoron. Aren't you contradicting yourself? What do you mean that he came after you, but also before you? This is what John the Baptist means, right? And, and what our John, our gospel writer, intends to remind us. John the Baptist, if you're unfamiliar with who he is, he's actually Jesus' cousin. And he was born several months before Jesus was born. And John's ministry, his public ministry, actually started before Jesus' public ministry. However, what we talked about last week is that John the Baptist's entire ministry was for the purpose of preparing people for Jesus' ministry. Right, So, so from, from John's perspective, he's saying, yes, Jesus came physically after me in the flesh. I was born first. My ministry started before his. And so, yes, he came after me. But John knows that Jesus existed far before he even walked the earth in the flesh. He was before me. He existed before me. Therefore, he is superior to me because of who he is, because of his nature. We've already spoken about this at length, and uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon from two weeks ago as a, as a refresher, even if you haven't. But we know that the word was preexistent, that Jesus was preexistent. And this is why we celebrate Christmas right here, because this preexistent word has become flesh. That's the cause for celebration. Verse 14 is the most Christmassy verse that we're going to get here in John 1. And the Word, who already existed, became flesh. That's what's happening right there in the manger on the day that Jesus was born. Maybe your entire life you've been confused. Why still to this day, we celebrate the birth of this baby that was born more than 2,000 years ago. Perhaps as you've sat in your own history class, you've wondered why is our very timeline marked by this birth? Our history of the world, both ancient and modern, has been divided into two eras. And the dividing line was the birth of this child. And we've placed labels on it. The the first being B.C., meaning before 
Christ. And then, and then everything after that was, it was AD, meaning Anno Domini, which is Latin for in the year of our Lord. They're talking about Jesus. Our very timeline has been marked by this. And if you want to be culturally sensitive and you say, well, we don't use those terms anymore. We use different terms in school. Now we use BCE, which stands for before the common era. And we use CE, which stands for the common era. You sit there and say, we don't use those, but you can, you can change the name of the designations all you want. And it still doesn't remove the fact that the dividing line between the two eras is the birth of this child. The, 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 the yardstick by which we measure time itself has been affected by this baby's birth. And once again, you sit there and you say, what's the big deal? Why all the fanfare? Babies are born every day and I don't even know their names. So why this one? Well, because this one is different than any other baby that has ever existed. This child that we celebrate is the Word, the pre-existent Word, who was God and creator of the world, and he has now entered into the world in the flesh. That's the cause for celebration this week, that God himself, the famous one, the superior one above all others, has come to us on our turf. This is what we're looking at. Verse 14 definitively tells us this and definitively turns our direction towards Jesus, his human nature. To to this point in our time in John, we've only uh, spoken about his divine nature, right? We've seen this in the opening verses of John, that he is fully God, that he's divine. But here in verse 14, uh, we come to realize that Jesus is also fully God man, fully human. This is an event. We call this event uh, that the word became flesh when Jesus was born. We call that the incarnation. In the biblical position, just so that we're perfectly clear, is that Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. He is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. It's not some sort of mixture as if there were two different people that have somehow been mashed together. It's not like as we do with our Christmas cookies, right? Where you take, you say, we're going to take this much flour and we're going to take this much sugar and we're going to throw some butter in there to make it really good and we're going to mix it all together and those things are going to cease to exist, but we're going to create something new. No, that's not what's happening at the incarnation. It's not that he was one part God and one part man, and we've kind of mashed them together. No, what we have in the incarnation is one person, the person of Jesus, who is fully God by nature and has always been fully God by nature, now adding to himself a human nature. And now Jesus exists as one person with two natures that are perfectly united and inseparable. He is fully God and he is fully man. This is important for us today as we read it in this moment, but it was equally important for John to include this when he originally wrote this gospel. He he wrote uh, this gospel in the late first century 
probably about 85 to 100 AD. And there's a good chance that some of John's language here is a direct response to some heresy that was floating around the churches of the time. There were people in the church that were that we would call Gnostic Christians who believed that Jesus was not truly a man. They would say Jesus was so divine that he actually couldn't be a man. It was just the appearance. Jesus wasn't really physically here. It was just more of a ghostly appearance. You just thought that he was here. They said that, we, yes, we could see him. Yes, he revealed himself to us, but he's not really physically there. This heresy is known as, as docetism. And that name is actually derived from a Greek word that means appearance. And this heresy wasn't necessarily a problem for Gnostic Christians because they claimed that salvation was from the knowledge of Jesus that he passed on that it was from his teaching. And we know that knowledge and teaching can be passed on without a human body, right? Think about it this way. Even as some of you are watching this very sermon right now from home, or if you're watching this years into the future, far long after I'm gone, I am passing on knowledge to you. I am passing on teaching to you, and you don't need me in the flesh to, to do that. As we read books, we're merely just receiving knowledge. We're, we're, we're receiving uh, thoughts and philosophies and ideologies, not from the flesh, just from something that had been written down so many years ago. But herein lies the problem and why this is a heresy. This, this is why this is such a disastrous position. I mentioned it last week, and I'll mention it again that the foundation of Christianity is not based on knowledge, is not based on a teaching. No, it is based on a person and what that person did. If Jesus was not born in the flesh, then he never died in the flesh. And if he did not die in the flesh, then he was never resurrected in the flesh. And that, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is the very foundation of our faith. And so, yes, we listen to Jesus' teachings. Yes, we follow our Jesus' uh, Jesus's teachings, not because he was some kind of wise man, a sage, if you will, not because he was a good man. No, we follow all these teachings because he was God and he proved it at his death and resurrection. Without that, our whole faith is futile. Even Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus physically, that if he didn't physically die, and he didn't physically come back to life, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If that didn't happen, there's no point. Just pack it up and go home. We're wasting our time. If that's the case, Paul actually goes on to write that the world should feel pity for us. Above all other people, we're the most pitiable people on the face of the planet. If Jesus Christ did not physically live and die and rise again, then we are, what Paul is saying, the most pitiful people on the face of the planet. 
This is serious, right? Jesus is humanity. It's such a serious issue that John, who wrote the gospel, would actually go on to write another letter, and he addresses this. He warns people about false teaching. Listen to what he writes in 1 John 4, verses 2 through 3. I've got the words on the screen behind me. This is what he says. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come, notice this, in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You want to know the ultimate litmus test to determine if somebody is a believer or if somebody is from God? Ask them about Jesus and then wait and see what they say. Just recently, I heard a story. Um, I heard it secondhand about someone, and, and so I, I, I don't, I never got permission to share this story, uh, but I'm going to share it anyway. Um, they can forgive me later. <laughs> um, they were they were actually in the hospital uh, for for COVID for coronavirus, and they decided to make good use of their time. And so this particular person, as a patient, decided to start witnessing to the nurses and the doctors and tell them uh, about Jesus. And on one occasion, apparently, a nurse came in, and this patient asked. Uh, asked the nurse, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? And the nurse responded saying, yeah, I go to church. And the patient said, that's not what I asked you. That's, that's not the answer. Can I tell you about Jesus? Even more to that end, as a litmus test, John here in this other letter specifically includes uh, Jesus' humanity in that passage. There's not a word in Scripture, a single word that is misplaced. And so the fact that John says that Jesus was in the flesh is so important. And as one commentator says, he, he, he writes that to deny Jesus' humanity was to deny the very heart of Christianity. John says that's not God's uh, teaching. If they, if they deny Jesus' humanity, they do not come from God. They actually come from the Antichrist. That's the doctrine of Satan himself. If anybody tells you that Jesus was not fully human, that he did not come in the flesh. If Jesus was not fully human, then Christianity has nothing to stand on. Because, you know, the fact that Jesus came in the flesh is actually necessary for our salvation. There's a lot of reasons why Jesus had to be human, but I'll mention just one as it pertains to our time this morning. You see, we were created to, to be in a relationship with God and a perfect relationship with God, but then our own sin and wickedness and rebellion separated us from God. And now we can't be in God's presence because of our sin. And in order to get back to God, we need a mediator. We need somebody in between. We can't be in God's presence, and so we need someone who can. Jesus is that mediator. And Jesus serves that as that mediator ultimately in his death and resurrection. 
Think about this. If he is not fully God, then he is powerless to overcome death. And he is powerless to satisfy God's wrath on the sin of the world. But if he is not fully man, then he is an inadequate sacrifice in the eyes of God. God, throughout all human history, required what is called a substitutionary sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, they would actually offer these sacrifices so that they would be made right with God, but they had to keep offering these sacrifices over and over and over again because they weren't adequate. And so what we needed was a full substitute, a pure, innocent substitute, one who is like us. And that's what Jesus did. And so him coming in the flesh, the the, the incarnation, we need this event if we have any hope. We need Christmas, right? right? We, We need that baby in a manger. We need the word to become flesh. And John wants us to know this. That's why he includes it. He writes this down. But furthermore, not only does he want us to know that Jesus came in the flesh, that Jesus as God was in the flesh, but John, who wrote this book, says, I want you to know that not only did he do this, but I've seen it. I have seen him in the flesh. I have watched him eat. I have physically touched his wounds. So if you're one of those believers right now, John's saying, if you're one of those believers that said that Jesus wasn't physically there, I got a bone to pick with you because I, I have been in his presence. He's real. He's in the flesh and he's dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That first part of the verse that we've just gone over is so profound Uh, that the word became flesh. And the second half is equally profound. That that he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. And the profound nature of this verse becomes even more profound when we actually consider the Old Testament and mankind's perception of God in the Old Testament. I would like to read a couple of uh, passages from the Old Testament and let them serve kind of as a backdrop to what's going on here in John chapter 1 and verse 14. I'll provide a little bit of context, but uh, nonetheless, we'll move through these fairly quickly. Now, first, I want to direct your attention to Exodus 33. Um, This interaction occurs right after God has delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity and they're on Mount Sinai, and God is like having a conversation with Moses. And right before this passage that I'll read, God commands Moses to take the Israelites from Mount Sinai into the promised land. And God promises Moses that his presence will be with the Israelites and that his presence will give them rest. And then Moses affirms that and says, you know, God, don't send us from this place unless your presence is going to go with us, because that's how you show that that we have found favor in your sight. And then you read on, and Moses, you can tell, is starting to get a little bit of confidence, right? He's kind of bolstering himself up, and, and he makes this request of God. Look what he says. Moses said, referring to God, please show me your glory. And he said, being God, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Essentially, Moses had to stand in this crevice of a rock, a cave, if you will. And God, as he's passing, covers his eyes, walks forward and then brings his hands down. And he allows Moses essentially to see just a portion of his glory because Moses didn't have the capacity to see the fullness of God. The second passage I want to take you to is Exodus 40, verses 34 through 35. They set out from Mount Sinai, the Israelites, and before they entered into the promised land, uh, God instructed the Israelites to build what was called a tabernacle. And the purpose of the tabernacle, it was built to serve as a dwelling place of sorts for God among his people. It was really just an elaborative, uh, an extremely elaborate tent that was portable so that the Israelites, once they encamped, when they were done and moving on to a new location, they could take it somewhere else and take it with them into the promised land. And look what happens in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And finally, I take you to 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11. The the Israelites are in the promised land. They built a temple. This is several generations later, and the temple really served the same purpose as the tabernacle. It was just even more elaborate, uh, bigger in size, and it was a permanent fixture, but ultimately it served as as a dwelling place of God right? And wouldn't you know that the same thing happened in the temple as with the tabernacle? First Kings 8, 10 through 11. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. In all three of those passages, God manifests his presence in some way and his glory is represented uh, by like this mysterious cloud-like formation. And it was powerful and it was wonderful and it was mysterious and it was unapproachable. God made his dwelling place with the Israelites. With that in mind, when we travel back to John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That's, that's actually scandalous. That, that's a pretty bold claim. The picture that we get here, when it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, is that actually that of an encampment, a, a tent. Jesus, as God, pitched a tent. He constructed a tabernacle. He took up residence among us. And just as God manifested his presence and took residence in the tabernacle, he has now, in a fuller sense, taken up residence in the flesh. 
And just as God manifested His glory in the the form of a mysterious cloud in the tabernacle, He has now manifested His glory in the flesh. When the Word became flesh, the glorious presence of God was embodied. God's glory was no longer represented uh, by some mysterious fog. It's represented in a person. It's in a face. And in this face, we have the fullness of God. A full representation of our Creator. How wonderful and fascinating it is that when Moses requests to see God's glorious face, he was denied. But now as Jesus has come to us and God has has made a way for us to gaze at his face in all of his glory. And there will be a day where those who are in Christ will be able to make physical, literal eye contact with our Savior. John, our gospel writer, says, I have seen his face. I have seen his glory. And when John writes that we have seen his glory, he's really bearing testimony to Jesus' entire life on earth. John, throughout the rest of this book, will go on to write how such glory was revealed and represented through Jesus' work and through his miracles. But above all, John will testify that the crowning achievement of Jesus' glory was his work on the cross, where he stood in our place and satisfied the wrath of God. That is what John is referring to when he says we have seen his glory. We, we have seen that he is full of grace and truth, that, 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 that grace upon grace we have received. He's pointing to the cross. And so once again, the Bible becomes a book, a story, as we've mentioned, of Revelation. I've mentioned it in the past weeks, how the Bible is just a giant story of Revelation, of God revealing himself to us. Right, that Throughout history, God revealed himself, uh, whether it be through prophets in a specific sense uh, or, or through creation in a general sense. But now, through Jesus, Through the word becoming flesh, we have the full revelation of God himself. This is why John writes verse 18, where he says, No one's ever seen God, the only God, the Son of God, being Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Jesus is the fullest picture that we have of God. And it's the fullest picture that we will ever have of God. We will never receive a a more full picture of God until we're in his very presence without our sin, which so distorts. There's nothing else out there. There's no any kind of knowledge or or mystery or, or, or secret wisdom out there that will give you a more full picture of God. And I don't want you to fret because we have everything we need in the person of Jesus to know God. And so I would urge for those of you who maybe have been listening or are listening today and you think, well, I'm a little bit skeptical still. 
Can I offer you a challenge that so many pastors before me have offered? In the coming days and weeks, I urge you to not stop here at John 1 verse 18. Would you on your own time go and read these claims? Go and read about John's testimony, a man who saw Jesus, interacted with Jesus in the flesh. Would you read the rest of this book? Read it on your own time and see his testimony to Jesus' glory. And I would encourage you that even if you don't believe in God, right? even if you're skeptical, maybe for the first time, just pray. Even if you don't want to, um, just humor me, please. Just say the words out. Say, 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 God, I, I don't really know what to think about you. I don't really believe in you if I'm honest with myself. But if you are truly there, would you reveal yourself to me? in this Jesus guy that I'm about to read. I ask you, just try it. Just try it and let's see what happens. And then when you're done, come back and chat with me and I would be happy to have a conversation with you uh, over coffee or something uh, to tell you just who this Jesus guy is. Or maybe you'll speed read it over the next several days and this Friday, you'll celebrate Christmas for the very first time. As you stare into the nativity, come Christmas morning, you'll no longer see just a normal mere baby. You will see the fullness of God in all of his glory. And you will see the man who stepped in your place and served as your mediator so that you may know God and enjoy his presence forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are thankful for our time this morning. But if we're honest, uh, one hour talking about the glory of Jesus in the flesh just does not do it. And if we're honest, Father, if we could go on forever to sing of your glory, we would, we would fail to speak of its magnitude. And so I ask, Lord, in the moments that we've had this morning, that by the power of your Spirit, there would be eyes opened and hearts awakened. Lord, we recognize that you can take such a short time and do miracles. So would you do the miracle on our heart, Lord? I pray that people would take us up on that offer to read the book of John, and would they see your face through your Son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, and now sits at your right side. We praise you for all of these things, Lord, and we are thankful for them. In your holy name, I pray. Amen.